This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray, him, George Belshaw, and him as well, Calvin Beton. Uh, thank you very much for joining us once again. Uh, I suppose, and I think it's been a couple of months since I've said this, a bit of a quiet week in the tennis world. But then George sent through the running order, and actually there's still plenty to talk about. Um, we'll be discussing Rafa Nadal's latest injury update. Simona Halep got married. Andy Murray's coming back next week. He's over in France. Uh, Roger Federer did pretty well. No, not on the tennis court, on the stock exchange. Uh, we'll also talk more about Emma Raducanu, of course, Clara Torsen, uh, Ali Risk and Yasmin Paolini, uh, Paul Jubb as well. And we'll have a look back at our early pre-season, in fact, predictions and see how they are faring. But there is, as almost always in the last couple of days and weeks, only one place to start, and that is Emma Raducanu. It's maybe different for, for listeners who come from other parts of the world, but I know lots of you live in the UK as well, and you will know that basically everything Emma Raducanu has done, including sneezing, uh, has been in the news for the last week or so. We're, we're just over a week after her US Open triumph. I've read she's going to become a dame. Uh, she's up to 2 million, or I think just short of 2 million Instagram followers. Uh, she promptly gave her £1.8 million prize money to her parents, um, maybe repaying some of the loans and time given over the years. Uh, Georgia, you know, you're freshly escaped from the world of the media uh, in, in a written perspective anyway. Uh, are you surprised that there's been quite so much post-hype? Um, n- no, not really. Um, because as Calvin well knows, I think Raducanu is going to be bigger than Rihanna. So I think <laughs> the start of the journey. Um, you know, I think it's just... It's been good, like stuff like Jurgen Klopp just commenting on it this week is, is really good visibility for the women's game. You know, him just saying, you know, he's called her the talent of the century, which I don't think any of us think is actually true. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, I'd, I'd still probably maintain, I think Coco Goff will 
win more major titles than Raducanu, um, mm-hmm. if we're talking about a talent. But it just goes to show what, what sort of cut through is kind of happening here. Um, so, yeah, it's really good news for women's tennis to just have a new star like this. And we spoke a little bit about kind of the Chinese market as well. I mean, just seeing her sitting there speaking Mandarin and setting up Weibo accounts is just all really smart from a business perspective. Um, yeah, I think she's obviously going to be massive. And, uh, you know, Calvin will say, this is only going to happen for two weeks and she's barely going to be playing. But it, it'll just be quite interesting to see. Like, I'm noticing from like afar, like I'm looking back where I was working for Metro, and when you're seeing like the news desk writing about these people like all the time about kind of nothing new things, like there was a piece Radikanu hugs her dad and it was just everything, it was a, a, you know, really cringe content. But kind of, <laughs> but that that sort of thing happening hasn't happened in women's tennis for anyone other than Serena for you know a long time, really. So it's um, and and that speaking, knowing Osaka's the highest paid female athlete of all time, that's she's still not had this treatment in the UK. Um, so yeah, it's really exciting times, I think. You mentioned George uh, Emma Raducanu creating a Weibo account. People don't know Weibo because actually almost all other social media in China is blocked. There's no Twitter, no Facebook, no Instagram in Twitter. Um, so anyone who's a keen follower of Weibo will have opened up the website uh, on, I think it was Thursday morning, and they will have seen this message from Emma Raducanu. Now, I don't speak Chinese, but I'm reliably informed that um, she was talking uh, not just in that clip, but throughout her video about how she didn't, she wished she had played in China this year, um, how she certainly was going to in 2022. Uh, she has picked up 15,000 followers in about four days on Weibo, about 12,000 of which were in the first day. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot because I said it to my girlfriend and she was like, oh, that's not very impressive. But Naomi Osaka, who was obviously from that part of the world, albeit she's Japanese rather than Chinese, she only has 80,000 followers on Weibo. Serena Williams only has 80,000 followers on Weibo. Emma Raducanu is already basically a quarter of the way there. So I think it gives you an idea of the fact that she can speak Chinese gives her oh, such a good way. Wang in. Chang? How many does Wang Chang have? She, she's been uh, the Eugenie Bouchard of Chinese tennis before. There we are. <laughs> interesting. Um, I, I know that Li Na has 22 million. Uh, wow. If that, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that, you know, obviously she, she won a Grand Slam 10 years ago. So that kind of, uh, that probably highlights that. Um, but Calvin, you know, you, you talk a lot and, and I know you've got a lot of friends in, in sports marketing and, and that kind of area. Um, I imagine that the fact that she's got this very strong connection with China, it, they must all just just be on wet dreams, desperately trying to get involved. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, as we said, I don't know what she did say there in that message. I assume she was thanking the New York crowd again. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm afraid that there wasn't, yeah, you're absolutely right. There wasn't, um, I, I've seen the translation, there wasn't a lot interesting in there. Um but yeah, I mean, everyone, the people I've spoke to in sports marketing have, have always thought the same, that she, she's very marketable. It, I suspect, like George says, he thinks that I think it would wear down after a couple of weeks. I don't, because I think everything that we've seen from um, from the Radicanu camp since Wimbledon, really, is that it's a well-oiled machine, um, almost to the point of 
being a bit cynical, I guess, apart from the fact that she's very good at tennis, but it, it all seems a bit uh, a bit already set up. And there's, yeah, you can't, you can imagine there's a lot of coverage and not a lot. We won't really know anything about her. I think that that's kind of what we'll get um, mainly throughout her career. Mm. I, I think it's interesting saying it, it feels like it's all set up. And I, I certainly have had that impression this week. You know, she's been with IMG for a while. She's obviously part of Max Eisenberg's kind of empire, the man who managed Maria Sharapova and Lena, funny enough, um, and a few others. So, yes, it is already in place. Although I was kind of staggered this week. And, George, you may know better than me because you're more in with these people. But I spoke to um, the media guy at the LTA because I was struggling – I was basically struggling for a contact for Raducanu. I was like, you know, who's who's the person to bounce press stuff off? And you know, Hellier. well, yeah. So I and I have I have emailed Christopher Hellier. Don't you worry, several times and got no response. And it sounds like a lot of a lot of the other media are finding a similar thing, and that actually IMG are kind of who the the, the global agency of absolutely enormous who are managing her, they kind of feel like they are scrambling a little bit and they weren't really ready for this explosion, George. Um, I mean, I, I kind of had the same perception as Calvin in terms of like straight after Wimbledon, she was at every big match possible, like sporting event that wasn't Wimbledon. You know, it was a really strong effort to get her seen at, at events and stuff. Um, so I think she was that, for example. Yeah. So I, th- I think I think the machine's well oiled. I mean the the interesting dynamic that you've touched upon there is that uh, IMG just have a pretty poor relationship with the British media and they're just not really willing to to help. Which you know is fine. Um, that's kind of their own deal. But it's that prerogative, right? It is going to be quite an interesting scenario now. Um, it'll be interesting to see who like lands the big interviews and stuff. I mean. You know, they'll always give stuff. I think they did. The Times had one before Wimbledon, didn't they, with Alison Rudd, with her and Jack Draper. You know, there'll be certain columnists like that they'll go to. But I think it'd be interesting how much actual tennis correspondent interview stuff there is. Um, mm. So it'll be an interesting... And, and I suppose, like, you know, it is a bit media-centric of us to sit here and go, well, they should be talking to all the tennis correspondents. Um, but I think what what you'll find is that if you do cherry pick your interviews and you go and and you don't go to the tennis guys, you can't really complain when all the media coverage is then not about your tennis. And if the media coverage then becomes about, for example, I've already seen the first mystery man headline, Emma Raducanu spotted with mystery man in an Australian title. Uh, and I, uh, by the way, <laughs> mystery man in the headline named in the first paragraph. So it wasn't that much of a mystery, clearly. Um, but I do, I do think that if you don't engage with the tennis media, love them or hate them, and I know a lot of people do, then you kind of lose responsibility for that media coverage being tennis-based. And while Emma Raducanu is going to make a lot of money about her not being a tennis player, she is, a, first of all, a tennis player. That is how she will make money to begin with. And so I do think that there's a kind of responsibility to kind of stay true to that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think the other thing is like you you probably wouldn't get that great a sense of without like being involved in this world. It's like just the, the kind of soft information sharing between like athletes, yeah. their camps and and the press. You know, there, there have been so many examples with Murray over 
recent years um, since I was involved. And I know the other guys who have been on the beat a lot longer have experienced this more. And I think there was a tighter relationship earlier in his career. But even to this stage, you know, there's there's lots of information shared that is never reported, um, yeah. private stuff. And it just gives you that context. Um, and you kind of build a relationship with um, Marianda's team. And I, I think that is quite... A, an important tool because it's you can keep stories out you can keep stories out by telling people them yeah like i've been in situations when agents or managers have said look this is going on we'd quite like you not to report it we'll talk about it in a couple of days but but right now we'd like you to just keep it quiet if you could and it's one of those situations where if i had found that out independently and then gone to them and said do you have a comment on this and they'd asked me not to run it I probably would have run it because it, it's been engineered from my end and it's a bit different. Whereas actually you can, if you're proactive with the media, not manipulate, that's the wrong word, but like you can have control of the story and we're happy to kind of play along with that because, you know, we're building relationships and that's part of our job. And, and when things are really important that those relationships become really kind of under scrutiny. So yeah, I think you're right, George, like it's disappointing that IMG have kind of found themselves in this situation because but they but it's of their own making like it's not they found themselves there that they did this and and that's kind of how it works yeah and you know as we've said it's totally their right to do that i just yeah it'll just be interesting further down the line when there is a story because there's always a story there's always something that and it, it won't necessarily be a particularly bad thing it'll be something that's spun wildly out of context and because they've not had control they don't yeah. have this kind of soft information and it will be other like more news focused journalists running that sort of thing i imagine um yeah and they'll ask the tennis conference and they won't be able to do anything because they don't have the relationship so we'll see I, that, that will probably change i'm sure uh, now she's got to this level but it, it'll be interesting to see how how that's handled from afar yes indeed um yeah you mentioned that the jürgen klopp uh, comments about her that's obviously just a an illustration of quite how far she's penetrated. Um, I was reading The Spectator this week and I read four different articles where the lead was Emma Raducanu. Um, none of them were really about Emma Raducanu. It was just endless political journalists using something vogue as a like intro that they would then just spin into something else two paragraphs later. It's funny, once you've seen sausage being made, you can spot fake sausage quite easily if that makes any sort of sense. Um, but yeah, she, she's not in action this week. She's not in action next week. Um, we think that the next time we're going to see her playing is going to be in Indian Wells, where technically she has to qualify. Uh, <laughs> I don't think any of us believe that she will be playing qualifying because they will give her a wild card at the absolute drop of a hat. Um, but she does seem keen to to get out there and, and to be playing as much as she can. We know she's probably going to be back in training in the next day or two, um, probably at the NTC. Um I want to talk about the last person who beat her, Clara Torsen, Denmark's very own. People may not remember or probably didn't know and have never known that Emma Raducanu was playing a challenger event in Chicago this time last month. Uh, she got to the final. She beat some decent players on the way there. Uh, and she was then beaten in three sets by Clara Torsen, who is perhaps the least talked about teenager in tennis at the moment because there are so many other, other ones uh, to discuss. She uh, was in Luxembourg this week, a tournament, funny enough, Raducanu withdrew from because she, she had other things to do. Uh, and uh, she got to the final. She played Yelena Ostapenko today in what I understand was a controversial match, but 
I think they always are with Elena. Uh, and she won in three sets, uh, beating the number three seed, Ostapenko, uh, 6-3, 4, 6, 6 4. Um, Clara Torsen is probably not a name we've said on the podcast before, George, except in passing, but or I suppose when she beat Raducanu as well, but we maybe should be talking about her a bit more. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, she's a really good player, and I think I think I'm right in saying she's the the fourth highest ranked uh, teenager or player under twenty. So I think there's Goff, Raducanu, Fernandez, and then Towson. I think is that right? Very good. A rare rankings memory. Um, but <laughs> well, it's it's only it's only true as of about an hour ago because previously she was behind Marta Kostyuk in the uh, world ranking. But she's overtaken her courtesy of her uh, her title. Is Fontek not a teenager anymore? She's uh, no, she's not. She turned 20. She was 18 when she won the French, wasn't she? Was she 19? She must have been just 19. I think she turned 19 okay. during it, possibly. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, um, she, yeah, she's a really good player. Charleston, um, obviously kind of tipped to be the next Wozniacki there. Um, I, I think it's a matter of time before she does some damage at a slam. That's not really happened yet. I'm not saying she's going to go and win one next year, but I'd, I'd expect her to start upsetting a few uh, players you might expect to win on paper ahead of it, uh, ahead yeah. of her. Um, and as we've seen, you know, th- this US Open should really act as a springboard for anyone else in the women's game again, you know, as, as should Sviantec's win last year. There's nothing stopping you at the minute. The consistency is not there from the top players. These draws open up. You can win them. There's no reason why not. So I'm sure she'll take great motivation from that. I think that, yeah, I think that's a fair point, George. I think the one thing that we've learned over the last couple of years is that like the Grand Slams, the, tw- the 2022 Grand Slams, I would say that at least two of them will be won by someone who none of us would be picking <laughs> to win them. If, if you look yeah. at like, even like, this year... Who would have picked Rad? If, if at the start, who would have picked Krajikova and Raducanu yeah, to win no. slams? And like last year, even um, Sophia Kenin, like although she was a bit higher ranked than the others, but no one would have picked Kenin. And then, then she, I was talking to someone about it today, and Kenin had that such a weird year last year where she won the Aussie Open, then barely won a match, and then made the final of the French, and then when she was in the final, reverted to uh, the rest of her year's form <laughs> and got absolutely duffed. Yeah, um, and has done nothing since. Incredibly odd. Yeah, it wouldn't be a surprise if Martina Trevisan wins a Grand Slam next year, yeah. and, you know, or someone of that ilk. Um, I was going to ask you, Calvin, because I was looking at you know teenagers generally um, in the in the rankings, and there are I think six female teenagers in the top seventy five uh, in the world. There's only two male teenagers in the top hundred: um, Alcaraz and Musetti, of course. Uh, I wonder. I mean. It, I remember being moved up a year at school briefly and all of us, and I was sort of 12 and all of a sudden I was a foot shorter than all the women. And presumably this is, this is a thing, right? That, that because girls mature earlier physically, it's more likely that teenage girls can get onto the tour and and make an impact. Is that, is that a fair assessment? It is, but it's also, I think it's, it's rare in terms, if you look through the history of tennis, you normally get more teenagers than that doing pretty well. Um, yeah. For one reason or another, like you, you get occasionally like the Boris Becker types, Boris Becker, Wayne Rooney types, who are already fully grown men at seventeen years old and yeah. huge men at seventeen years old, and there's no reason then why they can't progress. We've not had any of those for a while. You you kind of get in ones like 
I guess um, like Felix Auger, who was already a fully formed athlete when he was when he was sixteen, really. But um, yeah, you've normally got a few more. I think it's maybe a, a, a mentality thing, and it's also it's, there's a lot of depth in the men's game as well. It's tough to break through the challenger circuit. Um, I mean, I know that I was talking with Luke, who I coach on the, the way back from London today, and we were talking about um, a guy called Benjamin Bonzi has won his last three challenges and he's been hanging around the challenger scene for a while, but he's now top 100 and he hit some real form and he, you know, he's top 100 and he's playing challengers. He might be, yeah. He's, he's really as well. high. Yeah. But this guy was hanging around futures for a long time. I mean, he was, a, I was in Portugal last year and he was playing both of those futures. Um, I remember but, you mentioning him actually. Yeah. I, I can't yeah. remember one. Yeah. But um but yeah, you know, there's so many good players that, and, and they tend to be consistent. You know, I think that's maybe the thing with the women's is that the player, the, the older players, the sort of 25 to 30 year old players who are hanging around 60 in the world, the teenagers see them as very beatable, mm. I think. And, and the men, you know, the, the guys, the guys who are there, they're still pretty, very, very, very good players, really. Yeah. I think it, there's also like a, a sort of age disparity at the top end as well, because, you know, women, a lot of women will retire at 31 or 32 because they want to go away and have a family. And we know that they can come back, but that's still an incredible achievement when they do, quite frankly. So there is, inevitably, there are fewer players in their mid-30s because some women will go away and, and want to have children at an earlier age. And actually, it's, it's one of those things I never really thought about, that as a tennis player, a female tennis player, one of the things you sacrifice is, is having children at an age when perhaps lots of your peers are having children. You know, there's not many female tennis players go away at 27 and have kids. You know, we know women who go away and do it at 32 or 33, but probably lots of their friends have already got children. And I don't know, it's just a, a weird sacrifice that I hadn't really thought about before. But I wonder if it means that there are fewer women at the top of the game in terms of age, whereas, you know, there are loads of men in their mid-30s at the moment still hanging around anywhere from, frankly, one to 70 in the world. It's also, I think, a couple more things that need said as well. The men's, the American college scene is still pretty strong in the men's and you get a lot more guys go off there and play. They, they It's almost like a finishing school for a lot of players um, who go and play that and then they come out of that and still make the top 100. There's not a great deal of, of female players who go uh, to, to the US to play US college tennis and then come come out and make a top 100. And also, like, we, we get back to this thing again. I think the thing when we're talking about the sort of random people winning slams, there's two ways of looking at it. And I know some people say it displays the depth in women's tennis. And I'm more of the thinking that it shows the lack of depth in women's tennis, that that just any, anybody can just come and win one. It's so random. Yeah, I, I was kind of just going to say on, on the men's side of things, that it would be interesting to see whether this proves to be a long-term trend or whether this kind of recent no great teenage breakthrough in slams was kind of just due to the fact that you've got four of the best players ever just kicking around at the same time who were so dominant at slam level. Um, you know, and an example I'm kind of thinking of here is like Alcaraz this time has just beaten the world number three, who is a guy who's, you know, not a big four player. It feels like, you know, th these guys have been so uber dominant that we've kind of forgotten what life was like beforehand, where these mm. upsets could happen um, more frequently and young players could kind of burst onto the scene a bit quicker. So it'd be interested to see if it goes down that kind of avenue or whether people like Medvedev and Zverev 
and Sissipas will start being so dominant that it's still the case that we think only four or five guys could win it. I know we don't always get very excited about it, um, but the, the World Tour finals this year might be an interesting barometer for that because if you look at the guys who've won the World Tour finals recently, it's not been the big three. You know, Dimitrov's won it, Medvedev's yeah. won it, Tsitsipas has won it, uh, Zverev has won it as well, as far as I can remember. Yeah, I just can't remember which year. Um, so they, you know, they've all kind of had a breakthrough there. I remember even the likes of David Goffin going very well at World Tour finals. Um, there's going to be a few guys there this year who are new, even even beyond what we call the next gen. You know, Casper um, Ruud is probably going to qualify. Hubert Hercats has got a very good chance of qualifying. Um, potentially Berrettini, I suppose, as well, who we've not really talked about in that that bracket before. Um, I mean, he, even Aslan Karatsev might qualify at this rate, uh, depending on injuries. So I do wonder whether we're going to see the next next gen in what will be quite high tension matches, you know, in indoors. Okay. A bit different, but it just might give us another opportunity to see more people breaking through. And for me, uh, the best sort of form of the men's game is if we have 15 players who could win a grand slam. Like, I don't want it to be like the women's game where at the moment, anyway, there are about 40 players, if not more who could win a grand slam but equally, I don't want it to be sort of three because that's not interesting either. I think the happy medium is twelve or fifteen players. Yeah, I think we've we've been there before as well. I think kind of, there was a stage in like maybe around about two thousand and four when I think all of the top fifteen in the rankings had won a slam. It was crazy. Like it was definitely early two thousands, and you had like Sampras, Agassi, Rafter, Chang, Courier. Um, well, Courier retired in ninety nine. Then you because then you had people like Safin. Uh, Hewitt, Magnus Norman had uh, not Magnus Norman, Thomas Johansson had won one, and yeah, it was it was it was it was it was a strong time. But but at the same time, in that, that's kind of often also seen as the weakest sort <laughs> of uh, time in men's tennis as well. There wasn't any, there wasn't no dominance really. Hewitt was world number one for a while, and then Rios for a bit as well. But yeah, you, you, it's really funny, like trying to compare eras because you'll see this great row on Twitter about Federer actually being part of a different generation to Nadal and Djokovic. And you'll have the one camp who say he just beat complete fodder the entire time, even though they were Grand Slam winners. Then you've got the other camp who just say, actually, it was just super competitive and really tougher to win a slam than than now, this kind of weak era. Um, I, I do, you'd kind of have to say, I think the level's, kind of gone up then in terms of how tennis has developed but maybe the mentality has not been as good in the rest of the field in this last four years or just that these guys are just too good to even make it worthwhile comparing the rest of the field yeah i have a mate who, who tries to make that argument bizarrely that federer's early slams were worth more than Djokovic's because the the the, the runs to the final were stronger and that kind of thing so there was there was but i'm not really buying that myself like Djokovic just slams are all beating the other well most of his slams are beating one of the other top 20 players of all time in the <laughs> final whereas Federer's beating um, Gonzalez and um, Philippoussis yeah people like that it's funny I, because you know the the one that I always talk about is even Lendl you know being <laughs> world number one for as long as he was I know, and, and you know, I'm open about that. It's uh, the maddest beef in tennis. <laughs> you and Ivan Lendl. Well, I, you know, and, 
And it's, it is probably unfair. And it's just because I don't think of him as one of the best players ever. And yet he's got a few slams and quite a long time at world number one to his name. But, you know, it is worth remembering. I've just pulled up, for example, the year-end rankings of 1987. And you had Lendl, Edberg, Volander, Connors, Becker, Miroslav Mecher, Pat Cash, Yannick Noah. That was your top eight. And McEnroe was down at 10. Who I guess he was, you know, on the way out at that point. Um, although I guess he came back as well. Um, so it's obviously worth remembering that players go through ups and downs in their career. And there are going to be times when you have great players around and they just happen to have a bad year. I guess that must happen. And and maybe, and I'm willing to concede this, I'm a bit unfair on even Lendl. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's, it's always strange when you have this idea of generations, I think, that people like to compartmentalise them as like this was the era and that kind of thing. But even like only recently when I did a bit of reading about Borg and McEnroe was that I I definitely didn't think that like Lendl was the same era as Borg. But basically one of the reasons why Borg retired was that I think Lendl beat him three times in a row um, right. at the start of his career. And you, you just definitely don't have those as the same era. But then Lendl was also kind of in an era with, I mean, when Agassi came through, that he was playing Agassi fairly regularly. You definitely don't have Agassi and Borg in the same era. So no. um, it, it's tough to like, I think the generations ones are strange. And like you say, people saying like Federer's, like which generation is he? Um, yeah, people, I think it, it's very hard to, to to have in your head, like the, the, the sort of overlapping flow chart that is time. You know, it's, yeah. we like time to be very linear and singular and when things are overlapping, it's quite hard for our brain. So as you say, Calvin, like it's much easier to sort of compartmentalize things and, and make it a little bit easier to assess. I think the one that always kind of gets me is like Federer and Henman. I, I just think of Henman as like from a completely different time gone by. They played like 13 times, I think. Like that yeah. just seems totally crazy. Like obviously they kind of crossed and you had Federer beating Sampras in 2001 or whatever it was, but... Yeah, I mean, just Henry. But also stuff like like Federer, Roger Federer is older than Andy Roddick. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. yeah and and he had a like a, a proper serious career than Andy Roddick. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's just those guys who anyone who's you know Jimmy Greaves, uh, the brilliant footballer who sadly passed away uh, yesterday, and news broke this morning. You know, he is known as one of the greatest footballers ever, but he retired at thirty-one. Um, and still had an incredible career. But there are guys who played, I mean, okay, it was a bit different in his era because he was playing in the 50s and 60s, but there were plenty of guys who, who played four or five years longer than him and ended up with, you know, not many ended up with more goals, but at least maybe more appearances. Uh, just, George, because you mentioned Federer-Henman, do you know Federer's head-to-head record against Henman? I, I think he's, what did I say? I think it was about 13 meetings, and I think Federer's won ahead. But I think Henman had a pretty strong start and then Federer like clawed his way back. So I, I th- I'm going to go for 7-6, Federer. You're absolutely spot on, although oh. there is there is a retirement in there. So I would call it six apiece. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But as you say, Henman won the first... Well, apart from the one where he retired, he won the first six and uh, Federer won the last six. Probably tells him... Pretty sure, though, that Henman has losing total losing records to both Nadal and Djokovic. Sad times for him. Right. That is, I mean, I, I think, to be fair, if we if push came to shove, I would probably have to concede that, that Henman was not as good a player as either of those. <laughs> Just not marginally. It, it's close. 
uh, on a very fast grass court. Uh, who who knows? Maybe he could get a set off them. But uh, no, I, I don't think we can really put them in the same uh, bracket. Speaking of Tim Henman, one of his great rivals was uh, seen in action this week. Rafael Nadal, uh, as I said earlier, uh, perhaps a greater player, but we'll never really know. They weren't in their prime at the same time. I'm not sure when Henman's prime was, but I think there was a good 10 minutes. Uh, Nadal was seen this week uh, on crutches. He had treatment on his foot in Barcelona, I believe. But he was then seen without crutches. Uh, he played a, a golf tournament. Well, he didn't play. I mean, he had a he had a putt and a promotional golf tournament. Uh, there was then uh, a ceremony at his academy uh, for Daniel Rincon, who won the US Open Juniors title uh, and is from that part of the world. I think he worked with Nadal, well, you know, in the general vicinity of Nadal and therefore the Nadal Academy. More than happy to take credit for his victory uh, over Shang Jung Cheng in the final of the US Open boys. Um, good to see Nadal moving without, I suppose, George, you know, crutches and things. It, it would suggest it's it's maybe not a, you know, serious, serious injury. I, I don't know how to quite characterise it. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because I, I think we said before, I mean, this is something that actually has just been part of his career since like 2005. Um, mm-hmm. So in, in the degree of it being serious, I mean, it's like, it's obviously been serious enough that they've never sorted it in 16 years. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, his quotes are always quite funny, aren't they? I mean, there's almost nothing to take from anything he says sometimes. Like, he's just like, same old things. There's going to be periods of pain and suffering to get back, but I'm determined to do it and battle for stuff. Um, I'm pretty sure it'd be interesting actually. And this applies to Federer as well. Be interesting if they almost bother with Australia if it's going to be the same restrictions or how that's going to work out. I think that slam, it might be a convenient one to not be ready for <laughs> in some yeah. ways. Um, but I don't, I, I don't know. I'm just that's just pure conjecture. Um, but I'd say certainly well, surprised if Federer went. Um, yeah. It's been interesting, kind of because you know trying to arrange personal trip out there well professional trip out there um but it's almost impossible at the moment partly because they haven't opened accreditation yet uh i suspect because they haven't got a clue what that's going to look like or, they're, or whether they're, they're always pretty late with that to be fair well i think also they just you know i've emailed them multiple times and been stonewalled which is actually becoming a bit of a habit of sending emails to people and getting zero response but anyway <laughs> not a hint of that um really going to junk every time james that must be <laughs> yeah i maybe yeah i do get spammed a lot um i do just think that that they don't really know what it's going to look like at the moment australia is in a very weird place with with covid they've got very high vaccine skepticism you know vaccines have really been a blessing on this side of the world i've just booked a holiday into to france in november and I was reading all this, all this kind of, um, you know, all of the, the, the literature about what you are and aren't allowed to do. And basically it says most of it, the short answer is if you're double vaccinated, we don't mind too much, do what you want. And if you're not, then all hell breaks loose. And I suppose Australia are finding that most people aren't. And therefore that makes life a lot more difficult. Um, Calvin, if you had to kind of if I put you on the spot and said, is this the beginning of the end for Rafa Nadal? What would you say, or or is this just Rafa Nadal's end of season injury that he has every time, every year, about this time of year? Uh, both, I think. I think he's definitely one of those. He, he likes like 
he tends to get injured this time of year, doesn't he? And but I also think I don't even think it's the beginning of the end. I think we've we've seen for the last sort of year really that he's not what he was. And I think his record against top twenty players shows that as well. Outside of Roland Garros for the last really just really the last two years. Outside of I know one of the years is a bit last year was a bit weird, but he he tends to clean up the players outside the top top twenty, but He's not really beaten, and definitely not in the top ten, is he? Outside mm. anywhere except for Roland Garros. So, um, yeah, I think we've seen the we've seen the downward, the sort of downward spiral for a while now. Do you think he's the type who, you know, you mentioned Borg getting beaten three times in a row by Lendon, and I, I know you've said before that that Borg kind of quit because the game had worked him out. It's a slightly different situation, obviously, but do you think Nadal is the type who will? just bomb it because he's not elite anymore? Or, or is he prepared to do the Andy Murray thing and, and play at a lower level for an extended period of time? No, I think they're completely different characters. I think Borg, for all his sort of Iceman mentality, he had serious serious doubts about his own ability a lot of the time, whereas I think Nadal's the other way. I think Nadal will always make himself favourite against anybody when he steps mm-hmm. on court, even if it's illogical. I think that's just... I guess you do that when you've won 20 Grand Slams, don't you? Um, yeah, and, and repeatedly just win matches so much, but I think it'll be. I think when he does retire, it'll be a logical decision. I think he might think, you know, the, I think he'll probably be because the body's just broken down um, and he can't keep going anymore. But um, mm. yeah, I think it's strange though that like none. It's going to be weird when one of these guys says they've actually retired because like, <laughs> none, none of them have actually done it yet, have they? And three yeah, of them, it, three of I them wonder... are really struggling to win tennis matches. <laughs> I wonder if the dominoes might go. I wonder if one of them might do it and the others yeah. go, oh, thank God, one of us has done it. We can just go home now and sleep for about a year. Uh, yeah. I just wonder if it might, might kind of kind of follow in. Because, you know, there's going to be so much pomp and ceremony. I mean, Djokovic is obviously three or four years, I think, away from retiring. He seems, you know, like he's got something between his teeth and he's pretty fit. But Nadal and Federer and Murray... I do wonder how much we're going to be able to stomach the sort of incredible wailing and gnashing of teeth that is going to follow the inevitable retirement of these. I mean, you remember the slideshow at the Australian Open for Murray, which obviously turned out to be premature. But imagine that, but three times and more for Nadal and Federer. It's going to be painful, isn't it? Yeah, it's so strange, though, because like, like even with Murray, I thought like... the. the in the American swing, I thought he's really coming. This is the best we've seen him since for a couple of years. Yeah. And then last week he loses to Roman Safalan um, mm. in a challenger, and he getting beat up pretty bad by him yeah. at one stage. I think some somebody texted me at one stage saying he's six six one two love down, and he's only won nine percent of points on his second serve. Mm. Um, he ended up winning that second set, but then got destroyed in the third set. So, well, there was a toilet break involved. There was a long toilet break after the second set, that, yeah, and he, he was done. Um, and he's got he's got another tough one this week, hasn't he? he plays Humbert, who on a on an indoor hard court is is nobody fancies that. Although Humbert's no. not in great form. Given. No, exactly. Um, it's a lovely segue from you there, Calvin. Um, for for people who don't know, Andy Murray was in challenger action last week. His first outing since the U.S. Open, he beat Yannick Maiden in the first round, and then, as you say, was beaten by. World number 158, Roman Safiulin. Uh, as I mentioned, there was a toilet break involved. Safiulin lost the uh, second set. He went off for a comfort break. 
Murray was bouncing around behind the baseline, trying to sort of keep himself entertained. I'm told the toilet break was just short of five minutes, which is maybe not as egregious as previous ones. But I think every player outside of the top 20 is going to do this to Murray now. Anyone who thinks they've got more to gain than to lose is going to do this, if anything, just to wind him up. Uh, but anyway, he, he he was beaten. He was badly beaten as well in that third set. He was he saved three match points at love five, uh, which tells you an awful lot about how one-sided the second set was. It's actually, in terms of dominance ratio, which is a kind of very rough measure of how many points he won versus how many points he lost, it's actually his worst defeat um, since he lost in the final of a challenger earlier um, back in Italy to Ilya Marchenko which obviously was his fifth match of the week, so it's a bit different prospect. As you mentioned, Calvin, he's off to Mets this week, a lovely part of the world. Not You can get there by train from London in five hours, I happen to know. Um, so if you do find a way to stumble over there, uh, he's in action on Tuesday against Ugo Umber, uh, the left-hander, the 23-year-old. George, uh, as Calvin mentioned, a bad match-up. Um, how do you kind of assess his current state of mind and state of body? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with Calvin. I thought the Sissipas match was one of the most encouraging matches I've seen Murray play for a long time. Um, and one, I think we said before, I mean, I think one, he arguably should have won and would have won had he been a bit kind of big match sharper. Um, so, yeah, I, I've, I was surprised to see the result this week. I didn't watch it, um, so I can't really comment. On, on his performance, but I think those numbers you just were reading out pretty much sum up everything you need to know about how bad that was. Um, what I would say about Humber that he's A, not in great form, and B, I'm not sure he necessarily has the bottle to win the big matches. I know we love the word bottle, but I've seen him lose a lot of kind of play really well, but not get over the line in, in big matches against big name opponents with decent sized crowds, which you suspect you'd get against Murray, someone who brought sport. Although I have to say, match, so who knows? The, um, the attendance at Wren this week uh, was excellent. I mean, they pretty much filled the stadium, even for, I, I caught a few matches that weren't involving Murray, who was frankly the, well, there were a, fair, a few decent names involved, but um, yeah, he, he actually, you know, was, it was a full house for him, but there's been, I think attendance at French tennis is actually, usually pretty good. I don't know whether Mets, it being in the north of France and close to the German border, necessarily has the same pull. But um, yeah, it's an interesting point. Umber, of course, lost that lost that match to uh, Kyrgios in Australia, I think I'm right in saying, in, in five sets. When, yeah, of course. Um, but the one in Australia, I remember because, I mean, basically he should have won it. Like yeah, he, he, served he, it. he served for it and, and frankly was the better player on quite a few occasions. And the crowd got into his head because they were obviously absolutely raucous. And, and the crowd got kicked out, I think, before the last set. And I, I just think at that point, am I not, am I not right in saying that? That was the team one, I think. The team one, perhaps. Either or, way. Uh, did, or did they it come did. back for the team one? I can't remember. It's so, <laughs> it feels like an eternity ago, doesn't it, that? Yeah, February 2021 <laughs> does feel like an awful long time ago. But yeah, you know, we, we wish him well and, and hope he goes well, but it's not a great first round draw. This is kind of inevitable and he would say it as much as I can, although with greater authority, it's very hard to put a run of matches together when you're at, you know, a level when you're not getting good draws 
because he has to make this choice between playing at a level that's so low, it's hardly worth him being there, or getting quite poor draws in tournaments that he wants to be competing in. And he's kind of in a catch-22. Um, I thought he might, I mean, he may well yet, but in a couple of weeks it's Antwerp, which is the the European Open that he he won. It's his only title post uh, hip, double hip surgery. Only go on, singles titles, James. Sorry, George, go on. I just said only singles title, James. Don't forget the famous doubles win with Feliciano Lopez at Queen's. How could I forget? I'll give that uh, doubles victory as much time as it deserves. Calvin, you were going to say something. <laughs> yeah, so I think he probably will play Antwerp, but I assume he's going to play Indian Wells as well, is he? And it's pretty strange to be like doing the surface change thing, going outdoor to indoor, back to outdoor, back to indoor. Yeah, he has said he's going to do Indian Wells, which is pretty punchy. Um, presumably he's going to get a wild card. I can't imagine he's playing qualifying. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's only so many wild cards in the world. But I imagine Murray still has enough cachet that he will get one. Yeah, you're right. Um, and not to mention the fact that the main draw of Indian Wells starts on the 6th of October, I think. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that Antwerp is 10 days after that. So if he wins a match and then goes out in the second round, you know, flying transatlantic, you know, there's there's lots of considerations there which are making his life difficult. There's then also the consideration of the Davis Cup finals, which Britain are in the quarterfinals of, I believe. I'd be interested to see whether whether he turns up for that. I mean, I think he will turn up. I think he might not necessarily play, but... No, does he wouldn't... make that team at the minute? I mean... I, th- I think... No, I mean, Calvin, you'll know this better than me, but Murray is so highly respected by everyone involved that even if he was coming as a maybe to play singles... And to play doubles, perhaps like I say, he's, he's more likely to play doubles, isn't he? Now you'd imagine. I, I can't see them picking above Evans and Norris. So there's an issue with the oh. doubles. I know it's been I know it's been discussed. The problem with Murray with the doubles is that that the British players they have this very, as we know, very regimented system, doubles system mm. um, that they follow. And Murray tends to, as a singles player. I know some of the doubles players have got an issue with it that he doesn't strictly follow the system right. all the time. Um, they, they, it's very much based on like where you if 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 the if the opponents are in this formation and they serve if they're doing the I formation they serve T then you return in this this area. And Murray likes to go a bit more freestyle, and I think it frustrates him. So I don't think it's an absolute given that he'd play doubles, um, but and singles. He'll go for sure, but if he doesn't beat one of the better players, it's been a while since he's beaten one of the top 30, 40 players in the world. And mm. Norrie and Evans have done that regularly this year. So it'd be interesting to see if they play him. The, the other thing, just to say on the double side of things, I mean, you've got Joe Salisbury who's just won men's and mixed doubles and you've got Jamie Murray. I mean, there's no way Salisbury can't play now. I mean, he's literally like... Oh, Salisbury, 100% Salisbury playing. Yeah. What I will say about Murray... Um, Andy kicking Jamie out? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's got to be Salisbury and Murray, doesn't it, really, now? It depends on sides, both because Jamie can't play the ad side. And I think Joe plays Juice side as well. Mm. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Um, Neil Skupski plays ad side. I think Andy plays outside when he plays. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but the, the problem is because of certain technical weaknesses 
Jamie Murray cannot play on the outside. Yeah. Like, it would be a, I suppose it'd be a waste of time. You say Joe and Andy played pretty well at the Olympics, didn't they? I mean, lost. They had yeah. to the semis, so... It's a um, I, another thing I'll say as well is that Andy, he's not daft. He'll know if he'll know if he's got a chance of winning matches at that thing yeah. and he won't he won't demand to go in himself above somebody who he thinks has got a better chance of winning than he is. so it, uh, the british group uh, incidentally is uh, france and the czech republic uh, and i would think that andy would back himself to beat the czech republic's uh, number one singles player yuri vesely i mean he may not um, but I think he, he would wouldn't think play that, number one seed, though, would he? No, I mean he'd be playing. Oh, it's one versus one, isn't it? Yeah, they, is that how it's the automatic? So he's going to play uh, the Czech number two, who is off the top of my head, uh, Thomas Machak, the world oh. number one hundred and thirty-eight. I was about to which... shout that, James. <laughs> yeah, I know it's on the tip of your tongue. Calvin's signal dropped, I think, which is why he didn't say it. Um, so yeah, maybe he would back himself in that, but. But you know, against the against any of the French singles players, I, I don't think you're backing Murray to beat. You know, Hugo Umber actually would be the French number two, wouldn't he? Because Gael Monfils is still inexplicably world number twenty. Um, so yeah, you, you would you would think that Murray's in a spot of bother there. Anyway, it's still quite a few months down the line, and we're going to see him in action, as I say, in Mets on Tuesday uh, and potentially over in India Wells. In I'm weirdly, I'm going to put a rare prediction, but I think he's going to beat him there this week. That's that's my that's my bold prediction. I, I think he's going to win that match. I think Umber's So you're predicting win. that the bloke who's lost uh, four of his last five matches uh, has to <laughs> lose again. Well, Murray is... has also just lost to like, the world under 58 or something pretty bad. Yeah, but Umber lost to Peter Gachochik at the US Open, who's a world number 141. <laughs> I think Humbert beats him. I think, don't think it's a good matchup. I think it's, in terms of matchup, I think it's similar to when he played Shapovalov and Shapovalov destroyed him. Am I misremembering, but did he beat Humbert on his way to that title in the European Open? Is that right? Yeah, when he was still quite good. Yeah, he, uh, he I mean, I'm just going to check that, George, because it doesn't sound right. And, he did. Uh, he, did beat, he beat Humbert on that run. Oh, did he? Oh, he did in the semi-finals. Yeah, well done, George. But Humbert then came back and won the title at Antwerp the next year so you know who knows there's a, there's a lot there's lots of lots of angles here melting into each other uh, let's move on i'm talking nonsense as usual now coming up this week we of course have the 2021 labor cup postponed from 2020 it'll be held in boston at td garden as if nick kirios needed uh, any more motivation to to win he'll be playing at the home of his beloved boston celtics um George, with no Nadal and no Federer, although who knows, you may see them appear uh, just to clap in the stands if they can get a visa, although I think if you're either of those men getting a visa into the US isn't a problem. Um, do we think that the format, given I think the six players in Team Europe are all in the top 10 and Team World don't have a single top 10 player, do we think that it's just a bit silly at this point? I just really struggle to see what, what like the selling point is of this one? Like, I think it's a big problem for the format that basically all the best players are all European. Yeah, like there's just not like when they kind of had like we we're talking about getting Del Potter in there and Kyrgios when he could be more bothered. I mean, Kyrgios, to be fair, will turn up to this and oh, he'll love it. I mean, like he'll go mad for it. Like yeah. he loves the team kind of thing. He, he he does go mad for it, but if you remember last time as well. 
it was classic curious because there was one match where it came down to like the last match and he just didn't play it. Like he said he was injured or something. Like, and oh, he was you, playing you know, Nadal, wasn't it? Yeah. And he, he just said he was injured and like he was there on the sidelines, just like making his mouth. And it was another one of those like mysterious injuries that no one saw him do. And, you know, uh, so I think it's the thing with the scoring system is the only way they can really do it because they've booked the thing out for three days. It does kind of call into question. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how kind of impactful it is this time because, you know, Federer and Nadal playing doubles together was such a big deal when they did it. And, you know, that obviously sends everything mad and all the engagements on social media go massive. And, and obviously, you know, it's a big PR pull. And to be fair, the players took it seriously. And that that is always the make or break for me. If the players take it seriously, it's, you know, if you watch Ultimate Tennis Showdown, Patrick Murtoglu's brainchild, all right, um, your man Mutet was taking it seriously because, frankly, it was one of the bigger opportunities of his career. But the rest of them were just, you know, basically knocking it around. Um, whereas I think in the Labour Cup, they really do do care. And I think that that is kind of the, the make or break of anything. If the players aren't into it, then you can't expect anyone else to be. If I'm really trying to crowbar an angle, I think this is a good chance for Dennis and Felix to sort of send a bit of a message that there's something to be positive about on the other side of the pond and they can stake their claim as, you know, they can start beating Medvedev, Zverev and Tsitsipas and bring back some wave of North American dominance. That that, that might be one vague narrative we can pull from the weekend. I also think that the, the fact that it's in Boston will add something. They don't really have a big tennis tournament up there and it is a huge sports city. Um, and I think that, you know, they, they'll get to see these players, that crowd will get to see these players. Well, I guess they, they won't get to see Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, but they'll still get to see some good tennis, which they don't normally get. So, and you know, the Americans are like, they, they'll they be loving a um, opportunity to cheer a team sport. So, <laughs> Yeah, and I'm sure it's Boston. I'm sure there will be a few, uh, a few lagers had. Uh, it might Do, get a bit... Does anyone have any idea as to how they could make it, like change the the system or like change that it's Europe against the rest of the world or anything else? I mean, so it is, it is currently Europe against the rest of the world. It's just that the rest of the world have almost nothing to offer outside of North America other than like Diego Schwartzman and Nick Kyrgios. Um, I, I, I would be in favour of some sort of like Axis powers versus allies but i think that might be a bit controversial so you get like you get the germans uh and the, and, and the russian well i suppose the russians are kind of on our side um now there you go like yeah traditional like superpowers like you stick china russia japan germany italy you know mussolini and that stick all them together and then have like everyone else, you know, like good versus evil kind of stuff. I don't know where Spain falls in that. Tricky with Spain. Um, they've kind of been on both sides of history. So I don't know. I think that might be quite, might be quite controversial, that comment. But um... you, need to, you need to write to Roger and suggest this, James. I think <laughs> but I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the one thing that would solve the problems we're mentioning um, is bring the women in, like make it men and women's mixed event. Yes, yeah, good point. Yeah. You know, Osaka, the women's side gets Serena in there if you want. Mm. It's a kind of yeah, legacy yeah. thing. Um, I, I wonder... just think this is all the problems, actually. 
So um, the other option is, if, if anyone follows NFL, um, we're actually recording on a Sunday night, so I've got it on the telly at the moment. Uh, the Pro Bowl we used to be sort of the teams from one half of the league against the te- teams from the other half of the league. And they've now changed that. So they've got two celebrities as captains and uh, they have a draft, basically. They pick teams. And actually, that would be quite a good way of doing it, I think, is to have Team Borg, as it is, and Team McEnroe. And they sit down and they, you know, they take turns and pick players. You sit down with a list, like being in the playground at school, and you pick him and him and him and him. Uh, if the whether the players get behind it, I don't know. But you know, if you've got Daniil Medvedev in an event and Stefano Tsitsipas on the other side of the net, he's still going to want to beat him. It doesn't really matter what the event's all about. I don't know what I you think. That, that. I guess for that you need the kind of pool of players confirmed a long time ago, don't you? Um, You'd have to have the draft quite far in advance, wouldn't you? Yeah, and that that's kind of hard, particularly assuming they then get a random kind of wild card. Yeah, um, you could make. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe you have like you have fourteen players who confirm. You make them all turn up, and then you pick them on the day. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It's not it's not perfect. Um, they won't make a change until Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal have retired. I think that's. I find it hard to believe Federer is not going to rush in your allies. To be honest, George, it would be quite tough for Federer to do allies versus Axis powers because he's Swiss <laughs> and therefore wouldn't really have a standing in the entire thing. He could maybe Federer be the, the umpire. umpire. Yeah, he could be the chair umpire. Switzerland, chair umpire of the world. That should be their new tourism slogan. Slogo? Logo. Slogan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. One and low voltage. Um, let's move on before we offend <laughs> anyone else in the world. I think we've probably got pretty close at that point. Um, George, as you mentioned in the WhatsApp group, another um, and British tennis news, another 25K win for, for Paul Jubb, who's... Someone whose name has kind of been bandied around a little bit in this podcast, Calvin, I know you'll know him pretty well. Two titles in a row at that level. It's obviously a, a decent step forward for him. He's someone who came through the, the college system as well, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, yeah, no, Joby very well. Known him since he was 10. Um, he's he, he getting to the stage where he's probably a bit too good for that level on an outdoor hard court now. Mm. He's tough to beat. He's rapid around the court. He's athletic. He doesn't blow matches. He wins matches. He beats players who he's expected to beat and I'd expected to beat most players he's playing against on outdoor hard courts in 25Ks. So he'll be getting up towards the ranking now where he can get into challenges, Wally's. Um, that's quite a big step up. There's also been, um, I know it's, there's been a lot of attention on him winning 25K, but there's been a couple of the British players. Alistair Gray won a 25K in South Africa today. And uh, Ryan Story won a, I think he was a 15 in Bulgaria, and Felix Gill made final um, as well somewhere. I'm not sure where that was. I it's mean, that, a good week for the young Brits. A, a bit of a coincidence, or do you think there is genuinely a, a decent amount of depth in the in the men's game at that level at the moment? Um, yeah, they're good players. You know, all of those are good players. It is kind of like um, this week. It, there's been a lot of tournaments on. So when that happens, um, it gets diluted somewhat. South Africa was, was, and this is no um, slight on Alistair, who I think is an excellent player. South Africa was a really, really weak event, especially for a 15. Um, there was a lad who won a match in that, who tends to be in Greece when I've played in, when I've 
been coaching in Greece and he's not good and he made the second round and I'd <laughs> say um, let, let's say he tends to go to tournaments for the social aspect of it rather than the tennis I was going to ask if it was so weak that Skippy was suited um, well I don't, don't know I've no update on Skippy it's <laughs> um, been a year ago actually since since he made his debut on the tour so, um, <laughs> we need to track down his idea He's been he's been he's been away working on something clearly, <laughs> working on serving into the right service <laughs> box. <laughs> oh dear! Um, just to, to return, kind of finally, um, and and that's great news to to hear of British success at, at every level. Really, um, one thing that is a bit more serious and that we haven't mentioned, and, and I meant to earlier, is is regarding the Labour Cup. Um, basically, people trying to alert or kind of reply to tweets about. Alexander Zverev with, you know, some of the reporting that, that Ben um, Rothenberg's been doing into the domestic abuse allegations that that continue against Alexander Zverev from um, his ex-girlfriend, Olya Sharapova. And, I, you know, th- there's a certain amount to say that I think has already been said, but uh, Georgian, you may disagree on this, but for me, the, the biggest problem here is that the ATP has left us all, you know, up shit creek without a paddle here. For whatever reason, this probably isn't going to go to court, um, and domestic abuse allegations often don't because of the nature of them, because of the hardship of going through a prosecution like that. Um, victims often find it too much. But you can, and the NFL regularly do this, do your own investigation and come to a conclusion on the balance of probabilities in your own way. And it feels like George, the ATP, A, have no appetite to do that, and B, have no kind of protocol within which they could do that. Yeah, I mean, we were spoken a bit about this before, and they're kind of they're, they're reviewing their internal practices now. I mean, I have a degree of sympathy in terms of compared to the NFL, in terms of these guys all being kind of independent contractors, and where do you like legally? Take well, you could just ban them from tournaments that you run. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure that is where it end, end up. I, I just imagine it's a bit more legally tricky, kind of yeah. denying people work in so many different countries as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's kind yeah. of hard to like, pass that through. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, the silence has been pretty pathetic, to be honest. That, and, you know, this idea that uh, an account that's linked to the ATP tour is blocking people for mentioning it is like pretty gross, really. Um, just bizarre. I don't understand who thinks that's a good idea. If it's just a social media rookie on there, or whatever, just just mute them. Like, yeah. If you don't want to see it, like what are you doing? So the the silence is as damaging in some ways as as condoning or anything else. Uh, and very different news. Uh, you may remember that we, at the beginning of the year, as a team, decided to try and predict the tennis world. Um, it involved predicting all four Grand Slams and also picking a young player who we thought would improve the most. Um, on the predicting Grand Slams, uh, I think we've basically very few of us got any points at all. Uh, George, you predicted both Wimbledon winners. Give you some credit for that. Djokovic and Ash Barty right at the beginning of the year. Uh, Calvin also predicted Djokovic for Wimbledon. We all picked Nadal for the French. 
so uh, none of us picked Barbara Krajikova. You'll be surprised to hear for the the French on the women's side. Um, no, are you for the men's? Sorry, did I put Medvedev for the men's at the US? You did put Medvedev for the men's at the US, as did Calvin. Uh, I I picked Rublev in a kind of random way because I knew it would. I thought it wouldn't be Djokovic. Uh, but then you and I, George, both picked Osaka and Calvin picked Bianca Andreescu. So we hardly covered ourselves in glory on that one either. But the real interest... I think we picked Radicano, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would have been, you know, we would have been idiots for not betting on that because we'd have made a huge amount of money on that. I know you wouldn't have got odds, actually, beginning of the year. Uh, no one would have given you, given you odds. So it, just to remind people, the, uh, the players that we picked at the beginning of the year, George, you picked... Leila Annie Fernandez, who at the beginning of the year was the world number 88. And needless to say, she has blown us out of the water. She's, she's now up to number 28 in the world, uh, a rise of 60 places, which is, to say the least, impressive from you. Um, your 68% improvement is your number at the moment. I mean, things could change, but I would be surprised if you, uh, if you got much worse than that quite frankly she, she'd have to i don't even think she's got many points to defend i don't think i think you've probably wrapped it up already um because uh calvin's pick has not gone that well <laughs> what was it he said the other day she's had some nice pictures on yachts yeah <laughs> she's always in dubai probably <laughs> not playing any tournaments just like going to yacht things in dubai well, I've got good news for you, Calvin. Anastasia Potapova has qualified for Ostrava. So, you know, points galore there. Uh, yeah, she unfortunately has gone from 101 in the world to 91. Uh, the 10% increase is not enough to uh, to claw your way back. At least, at least she's gone up because that felt like it could be in danger of a slip back down. She went, I think she'd been higher than that, though, hasn't she? She went up and then she yeah, dropped. she got up to like 60, 65 in the world, I think she got as high as. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm afraid I'm afraid that dream may well be dead. Uh, I mean, I've been going all right. I picked Clara Burrell on, on an eyeball, quite frankly, because I saw her play in qualifying for the Aussie Open. And I thought, this girl looks like she can play. I didn't really know much about her other than that. She was the world's 236 at the time. She's now up to 93, an improvement of 143 places, 61% improvement. Not even that far behind you, Joy. If she picks up a, if she picks up a few points at the back end of the year, she, we could be a somewhere. 500 points, that'll take you seriously. You've got bigger climb potential there. So. I would say winning a 500 title might be beyond... Little Clara at the moment. She's she's going well, but I'm not I'm not confident. Uh, yeah, in the men's, it it's still pretty close. I think. Uh, can you remember who you picked, George? I've got Massetti. You have got Lorenzo Massetti, who was world number 129 at the beginning of the year. He's definitely higher than that now. He certainly is. He's up to 57 Ooh, in the world, an improvement of 56 percent. Which is, I have to say, George, I don't like giving you credit for anything. That's pretty handy. Uh, but I think, you know, we had also talked about him. I think we were all quite confident he was going to have a big year. Um, he didn't have a I big think... year where I thought he was going to, in fairness. I mean, he, he was <laughs> the hardcore Masters final that's kind of saved that, didn't he? Um, yeah. But he, he didn't do as well on the clay as I was kind of hoping, to be honest. I thought that might be a dud pick. Um, but, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, George, it looks like it's not going to win you anything. Oh. Because. 
Sebastian Corda oh, yeah. has gone that's from a hundred. Very good pick. He's had a great year, and uh, he's gone from 119 in the world to 42 in the world, which is 65 percent. Gives me a nine percent lead, which I, I'm pretty pleased. Again, I'd still say there's time in that, and Massetti's capable of winning titles. So you never know. You never know. Okay. But- I'm guessing Calvin's not winning. He's on Yannick's cinema. No, Calvin's Calvin's right in there. Calvin's in between the two of us. Is he? Am I last in this one? You are very much so, despite having improved like 60 places in the world. (laughs) Yannick Yannick Sinner's gone from 36 in the world to 22. uh, Sorry, 36 in the world to 14. A 22 place increase, which gives him a 61% increase. So it's very... I maintain that I'm actually winning this because Sinner is the best player. (laughs) <laughs> as well, and, it, it's, and it's more difficult to climb up from like fourteen to, or like thirty-two to fourteen than it is from like one twenty to forty. That if you misunderstood the format, that's not my fault. That's like you should have read the rules. <laughs> You're happy to take that victory. I can't speak for you, but I'm, I'm, I'm winning it. Uh, Calvin, as usual, clinging on to the moral victory. Um, that's all we've got time for this week. We'll of course be back next week uh, with. I don't know. There's a, a couple of W, there's an ATP event somewhere, I'm sure. Yes. I can't remember where. Oh, yeah. About it. <laughs> Andy Murray. In the Labour Cup as well. Oh, the Labour Cup, George. That I, I'm struggling to get excited about it, mostly because it's going to be on at about three in the morning, half the time. Um, but yes, we'll discuss that. We'll discuss the ATP Cup. Uh, Andy Murray in Met. Much, much more, no doubt. Please do give us a follow on Twitter if you're not already at Love Tennis Pod. Um, leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts and take care and have fun if you can Sports Social Podcast Network Step into the world of power loyalty and luck I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply